Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation and the Surviving Hard Times Podcast. I have Andrew Morris. He's a professor at Texas A&M University. And we're going to talk about quote-unquote green energy and if it's really green and uh, what the deal is with it. So, Andrew, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. If you would tell me a bit about your background and then what led you to the work you're doing today. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a lawyer and an economist, which is you know somewhat deadly combination for many people. Uh, I went to law school first, and I practiced law for a while. Uh, I was a legal aid lawyer in the Texas Panhandle, and I clerked for a federal judge named Barefoot Sanders, Dallas, Texas. And then I went to graduate school and got a PhD in economics at MIT. And then I started teaching, primarily in law schools, but also in other places I've been teaching for almost 30 years. And what, what is your work about today? What kind of research you're doing? What kind of questions well, I, are you trying to answer? Yeah, so I, I work on two main areas, that one of which we'll, we'll talk about today, which is sort of analyzing regulatory measures and trying to understand how regulations work, why we adopt the regulations we do, how they might be better, things like that. And the other is focus more on uh, international finance, and maybe we'll come back to that another time. But uh, with respect to green energy, I got interested in the topic because we kept hearing a lot about it, and I've been hearing about it my whole life. So I, I went to high school in the 1970s and I and college in the 1970s, and I learned about green energy then, and it was supposed to be the miracle that was going to come along, and it was always five years away. And so I noticed that it, it continued to remain five years away. So with some uh, co-authors, we decided to dig into it and uh, learn what we could and ended up writing uh, the book uh, a while ago that uh, we connected over the false promise of green energy and, and looking, really trying to look at the data about what, how we use energy, where energy comes from, and to think hard about the trade-offs that are necessary for us to uh, change the way we use energy. Well, has anyone done a uh, you know an energy balance on let's say an electric car versus a gas-powered car, all the inputs, all the externalities, all the energy use. Yeah, so there, there have been efforts to do that, and they, they're usually controversial because you end up having to make a lot of assumptions. But a, a number of years ago, there was a, a study done that, that result, the results of which were that it was less damaging to the environment to drive a Hummer than it was to drive a, an electric vehicle and that that was largely driven by the fact that the batteries in electric vehicles are made in China with very heavy things uh, that usually come from places where they're mined in really environmentally damaging ways. And so that, that sort of dominated the total lifetime cost of the electric vehicle. Now, you can, you can argue about the assumptions behind these studies, but I think what, what that put on the table and which we still haven't really addressed fully in our policy decisions is how do we trade off something like the damage from the way cobalt, for example, is mined in the Congo 
and not just the environmental damage, but the damage because a lot of the cobalt is mined in the Congo by children who are uh, essentially enslaved uh, to basically dig out the cobalt with their hands. How do we trade that off against uh, the damages that might happen uh, due to climate change from increased uh, emissions of fossil of, of carbon greenhouse gases from fossil burning fossil fuels? And those are really hard trade-offs and people don't want to talk about that. They want the sort of magical unicorn way that we can just continue to live our lives and maybe it'll cost a little bit more, but it's it's not going to fundamentally require anyone to do anything differently. But again, has anyone done a, again, energy balance between an electric car and a gas car and, you know, well, whatever it, set of assumptions you want to use, what, what does it look like? Do, you know, well, it, do it, gas it, cars require less inputs and... Want to go pollute less or more than electric, or what well, they, they, like? they pollute differently, right? So, so uh, w- when we talk about an internal combustion engine, it pollutes differently than an electric vehicle, right? So, electric vehicles cause pollution; they just cause pollution at the power plant where the electricity is generated. So, the answer to that is usually, well, let's do let, let's use wind and solar. Well, a wind and solar actually involve some environmental impacts, so they they, they certainly involve it in making the wind turbine or the solar panel, again, often using rare earths that are mined in environmentally damaging ways. And then you have to ship very heavy uh, wind turbines around the world. They're, a lot of them are made in China. We ship them to the United States. So there's those carbon emissions involved in that. And then at the end, you got to do something with it. And we they're not recyclable. So we, we, we're, we're going to have a lot of landfills filled up with uh, giant uh, used wind turbines. And then while they're operating, they cause serious damage to, to birds and bats as well, both of which are important things from an ecosystem perspective. So you ask, is there, has anyone done the balance? Yes, people do these things, but it turns out they're usually driven by the assumptions that are baked in. And so there's no clear answer, which is better. And so when we see policymakers doing things like saying, as the European, many countries in Europe have done, well, we're going to abolish internal combustion engines in 2030, which is usually conveniently after any current politician plans to be in office, that, that's really hard to imagine, right? We don't have the infrastructure for that, and we don't know what the environmental consequences of that are going to be. And what we should be having is a debate about those kind of goals, looking at what are the assumptions we make about uh, the kind of uh, electricity generation going on uh, to fuel the, the vehicle. So you may have seen that California which is banning internal combustion engines uh, in the future. And at the same time, telling people not to charge their cars. Exactly, right? So, so the, again, the, it's like, good luck. You, you, you know, you're stuck. You the, got nothing. The, the, you know, the infrastructure doesn't exist today to charge the cars they have, let alone the cars they want to have. So you have to ask, what are these people smoking? If we're going to have this massive transformation of our energy infrastructure, it's going to involve a lot of costs on a lot of people. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily make the environment better off. It might make it better off in one dimension, but it's not going to make it better off in another. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I'm here in Austin and uh, two years ago, you know, over the winter, it snowed and it was freezing and all the solar and wind that, from what I've been told by, you know, people from ERCOT comprised 22% of the grid was offline with no backup. And even with the backups from fossil fuel sources, we were still at a deficit and we were supposed to have rolling blackouts, and instead, what we had is just over a week of no power. Right. So it was a horrible mess, and God knows how many people froze to death, and no one cares, no one says anything, and and off we go. Well, 
So the, that incident is a, is a great example of the trade-off. So people said, oh my gosh, you know, the stupid Texans, they didn't protect their energy infrastructure from cold weather. So we had a lot of uh, energy infrastructure that froze up, including some valves and things that, that, that involved in natural gas uh, production. Well, it turned, you know, the reason the Texans didn't protect against cold weather is it's usually not cold here. And protecting against cold weather is the opposite of protecting against hot weather. In hot weather, you want to shed heat. And so when you insulate this equipment, it gets hot in the summer, which is a lot more of the time than freezes are in Texas. And as a result, you would make it the infrastructure more vulnerable to heat, which is the more common threat. So you can't just say, oh, we should have insulated all this infrastructure. Well, we would have then probably caused problems when it was hot out. So trade-offs all the way down, we're always confronted with trade-offs in these policy questions. And people need to get data and they need to look at the data and think about it if they want to make sensible decisions. And unfortunately, we have kind of a religious commitment to not using a really abundant and convenient fuel, natural gas, which is readily available and is is a terrific fuel and much less environmentally damaging, say, than than coal. So we, we're, we're in the process of replacing a lot of our coal generation capacity in this country with natural gas. That's a, that's a great thing for the environment. We ought to be celebrating that. Be replacing a lot of it with nuclear power if we're, if we're worried about greenhouse gas emissions. That's the, that's the least environmentally damaging form of electricity generation, much more reliable than uh, wind or solar. And you need those big, reliable units to handle the baseload. But that crosses the line for the German Green Party, for example, which wants to get rid of nuclear, not because of any data that shows that nuclear is bad, but because it's kind of a, a religious commitment they've made. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What do we do when, I mean, everyone is operating under these assumptions. You know, I've interviewed about 3,500 people over the past six years and I hear it all the time. Oh, we're in a climate emergency. Oh, of course we need to do this for the planet. And it, you know, it's become pervasive. Everyone has accepted what's being put out there. Oh, this is carbon neutral. This is green. This is zero emissions, but it's just not even close to true. What do we do if People won't even begin to think outside of what they've been told. And what they've been told appears to be not only politically motivated, but complete BS. Well, so I think the question we have to answer is, you know, what undoubtedly releasing a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is going to do something. We're a little uncertain about exactly what it does, but it's probably going to cause some changes. And what we should be doing, I think, is the answer that comes out it came out of a process by Bjorn Lomborg, who's a, became famous for writing a book called The Skeptical Environmentalist. Impeccable credentials. He was a Danish scientist. He was a member of Greenpeace. Uh, you know, couldn't be more in tune with this. And he, he set out to study 
what's really going on in the environment. And he wrote a book called The Skeptical Environmentalist, reported the results, which is that the world was not, in fact, going to hell. And he was attacked viciously for this. But he made quite a bit of money from this book. And he set up a process called the Copenhagen Consensus, where he brings decision makers together and he gives them data. And he gives them a bunch of problems. So uh, climate change would be one. Uh, the fact that we have uh, an extraordinary number of people still dying of malaria is another, things like that. And says, okay, you've got $100 million to spend. What, what should you spend it on? You can only spend it once. Right? You can only spend $100 million. You can't spend $200 million. And when they sit down and go through the data, the groups inevitably come back and say, well, we should do something about malaria, which we actually know what to do about. And we should deal with climate change later because we'll, we'll have better ideas what to do, do about it later. But we shouldn't spend an enormous amount of money dealing with it today. We need to understand how to mitigate the effects of climate change and adapt to it and do things like get carbon out of the atmosphere. If that turns out to be what the most efficient thing to do is. Uh, but instead, instead we're, we're sort of rushing off in this direction of saying we're going, we, we all need to be driving electric cars. And, you know, people who live in Texas like us. I can't drive to my wife's family's ranch on one charge of an electric car. And I don't want to sit around for three hours if there was a place that uh, I could charge uh, an electric vehicle in between here and Junction, Texas. I don't want to sit around for three hours while I'm making the five-hour drive, right? So th these vehicles are not yet practical for, for many of us, but we're being pushed constantly to, to make sort of radical technological changes that we're just simply not ready for. Another right. example, right? Uh, we hear a lot about you know electric vehicles. Well, heavy-duty trucks, which are largely diesel-powered in the United States, you know, the diesel we've gotten them about as clean as we're going to get them. Uh, they still still pollute. Great substitution for fleets of heavy-duty trucks are compressed natural gas-fueled uh, uh, heavy-duty trucks. We actually know how to make those. They're actually in operation. You know, you, you see buses and. So for the natural gas and fleet vehicles, you don't need a lot of infrastructure for because they go somewhere. Uh, they go to the same place to, to pick up goods. And so you can have you don't have to build a whole lot of new fueling stations. And for large scale shipping around the country, all we have to do is put fueling stations along the interstates. Uh, well, you know, we've actually already got infrastructure delivering gas, natural gas to places along interstates. So we we could easily put in pilot truck stops around the country compressed natural gas fueling stations, and we could convert our trucking fleet in the course over about 10 years. That's the lifespan of a, an average truck to that. And we, we would dramatically reduce emissions. And it's not, yeah, it's not reliant on children in the Congo digging up cobalt to make batteries. Uh, and it's not reliant on inventing new technologies that we don't know that we're going to have ready to, to solve. So we, we could make a dramatic improvement Right now, we could start that transition, but it, it doesn't fit the sort of religious obligation people have, the commitment they feel to uh, adopting a, uh, a brand new technology that is untested and, and not yet available. Yeah. What, what do you think with the, uh, the supply chain disruptions and the lack of likelihood of getting, you know, uh, products from China? What's that going to do to, you know, this quote unquote green energy? solar and wind, it'll be harder to actually get that and put it into place. Do you think yeah. that's going to push us back towards natural gas and other fuels? Oh, uh, it, it should in that one lesson we've learned in the last year and a half, right? Uh, not only do we have the supply chain disruptions uh, from the pandemic, 
Uh, but we also see what happens when you're overly dependent on one supplier from the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting energy crisis in Europe. So we really don't want to be dependent on one source, anything that goes into our energy. And most of the rare earths and, and uh, minerals like cobalt and so forth that go into all of the green energy technologies we're currently using are either in China or controlled by Chinese companies. And so that's, you know, that's a security issue. So again, there's a trade-off, right? So uh, we need to be thinking about this. Now, the, the Biden administration's answer to this and the, the, the Trump administration's answer too was to, is to put tariffs on uh, Chinese uh, products. That's, that, that doesn't solve the problem. We're actually in the, so let me mention some other research I'm working on. Uh, we're actually in, 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 we're solving this problem in a, in a sense uh, because Americans tend to be really good at inventing new technologies. And so when uh, a colleague and I are looking at patent data on solar photovoltaic patents, uh, what we find is that the Chinese patenting activity in solar photovoltaics is largely uh, patenting marginal improvements in manufacturing current solar technology, right? And that makes sense. China's manufacturing most of the current solar technology. And so they're interested in shaving a tenth of a cent off here, a, a penny off there. U.S. research, not government-funded research, just research being done by businesses that, that is producing patents, is largely in the areas that scientists who work in this area say we ought to be investing in research in, which is finding new materials with, to make solar uh, panels out that are more efficient than the current uh, technology. And so the, the, the usual story about solar is, well, the wise Chinese government has invested in solar and the stupid Americans leave it to the market and it's not going to go anywhere. It's actually the reverse of that. The, the Chinese are not pushing the technological boundary at least they're not patenting it if they do, whereas Americans are. And so leaving it to the marketplace, we actually have inventors in this country do, producing uh, hundreds of patents a year in the right areas that the people in the industry itself say we ought to be innovating in. And so I think, again, the, the green advocates often forget that the greatest advances in energy come from the market. Uh, and we we can do a lot more to stimulate the market. But if we really want to see progress, we need to be empowering people to make uh, inventions. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I totally agree. It just seems like um, we're pretending to clean up our country, let's say, and we're sweeping all the garbage underneath the offshore rug, you know, the mining of rare earths, the, all the dirty parts of it where we're kind of, we've been offshoring and what we're left with looks like clean and easy and pristine and green, but it's really not. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's exactly right. It's not that there aren't any rare earths in the United States. It's just that it's prohibitively expensive to start a new mine. Whereas in China, it's not because the Chinese government doesn't care about the environmental impact of, of mining to get the stuff they want. And in Congo, you've got people who are either literally enslaving others to do this, or they're they're so desperate that this is this is their best alternative. But you know, the, there's certainly no serious effort at environmental protection in the mining industry in Congo. Congolese government isn't focused; it doesn't have an EPA that's effective in the way that a Western country's EPA would be. So you're you're absolutely right. We we pushed all this dirty stuff offshore, and then we can drive around our electric car 
and feel good about ourselves. How do you operate in, in academia with it? I, I don't know. I would guess it'd be a very hostile environment. Like, how do you interact with, with other people in your field? And, you know, I would think you're more one of the rarities. And I don't know. What's it like for you? Oh, well, so it, it's certainly true that uh, academics uh, trend uh, to the left. And even in a discipline that's thought to be right wing like economics. But, you know, you just have to kind of actually have some data and, and engage with people. And, and, and you know, if we're, if we're going to change people's minds, we actually have to have conversations. And so while universities have certainly gotten worse as a general matter over the course of my career, there are still places that at least on, on the things I work on where it's possible to have conversations with at least some people. Uh, it doesn't mean we can talk to everybody. I'll give you a good example. There's a couple, uh, a number of years ago, I was at another university, which I'll, I'll, I'll I won't name, but we were we were going to have a, a talk on fund, and I was on the committee that was supposed to pick the speaker on climate change, and I suggested Bjorn Lomborg, who was uh, at that point had just published a book called Cool It, in which he said, I I believe climate change is real, and I don't think we should do anything about it right now. I think we should focus on uh, inventing ways to to deal with the problem, and we'll, there'll be much better ideas to how to deal with it in ten years or fifteen years. And instead, we should focus on solving problems we know how to solve. And said people say, "Oh well, you know, we can't can't have him. You know, his ideas are crazy." And I said, "Well, uh, I think they're crazy. I, they, they seem pretty well thought out. And he's got a book with a major publisher. Uh, well, why don't we get somebody else to debate him?" And the answer was, "Oh, nobody who takes climate change seriously, which actually did include him." would debate him. You know, he's just beyond the pale. And so if you're not willing to have debates, right, this is a, this is what will destroy universities if people are not able to debate important topics. That's why universities exist. Yeah, unfortunately, it's already happened. I mean, it's pervasive. Yeah, so I'm I'm a a MIT alum and I'm involved with the MIT Free Speech Alliance. And, And in a relatively peripheral way, in my way, but I look at what some of these very talented people uh, who are all graduates of MIT have done to organize, to really put pressure on the university to to improve free speech climate. And this is in reaction to the Dorian Abbott uh, speech cancellation, where a, a renowned climate scientist, or, or sorry, renowned uh, astronomer, planetary scientist, had his talk canceled uh, because of his views on affirmative action and hiring. And this caused a, a huge uh, stir uh, generally, but it, it really got these alumni riled up. And these are these are you know people who are used to getting stuff done, and it's been incredible. The organization that's been built in a very short time with a permanent hired staff and raised money, and and really starting to have an impact on MIT. And so I think that's a that's a hopeful sign. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, I guess last question or so. What what do you see as uh... I don't know, uh, the future of energy policy in the short term. It seems like, uh, you know, the last year there's been a, a horrible unraveling of, of rationality and energy use and infrastructure. Where do you see it going uh, over the next couple of years, literally? Well, I, I guess we'll, we'll know more about that after the election results, right? So if, if the Democrats continue to control Congress, we should expect more things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a huge push into uh, green energy. Uh, and, and in that case, I think that this is a ill-considered approach. 
and we're going to see more vulnerability introduced into the U.S. energy supply. It'll become more fragile, and, and events like two winters ago in Texas will become more common uh, because of the kind of fragility that, that over-reliance on particular forms of energy uh, introduces. If the Republicans take the one or more houses of Congress, which at this moment seems likely, I, I would think that that will sort of stop in the on the legislative front, in the funding front, although I suspect that the Biden administration will continue to do things through executive orders and regulations that will uh, push um, uh, push some of this, but it'll it'll slow that down. And I think that's this is going to be an issue in the next presidential election. What are the goals of energy policy uh, for the United States, and how should we be approaching this? And what I would hope, but I'm somewhat pessimistic about, is that we could have a, a data driven conversation. When you when you read about this stuff in the media, uh, you rarely see a follow-up question asked by a reporter to a politician uh, when they make a, a statement on any side of the issue, uh, saying, well, what about this? What about that? Uh, you know, can you explain something? Can you explain how your proposal will work in in this context? And so I think I see small signs of hope that there are more and more voices pressing for that kind of conversation. And, and we see this in the growth of things like Substack, where people are able to build an audience independent of traditional media platforms and, and do some work on this. Uh, so there's uh, several people out there, I think. So uh, right in Austin, you have Robert Bryce, who's an amazing energy writer and who gives, gives really data-driven talks and, and sort of puts things in context. You know, how much energy do we use? Where does it come from? What are we doing with it? And so uh, people like him have been able to carve out a niche. I think he, he, he gives a staggering number of talks a year, right? So the, there's more information getting out there through more channels. That's slightly optimistic there. And in the long run, I think we should be optimistic uh, be, in part because of uh, the economist Julian Simon uh, wrote many uh, years ago. He wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource in which he said, you know, people are the ultimate resource and people solve problems. And when I look around just my university and I see the amazing advances in technology that in science that come out uh, on a regular basis from, from just one place. And I look and I consider how many places there are like Texas A&M, where there's these incredible collections of, of scientists and engineers uh, doing this kind of work. I think we should be optimistic in the long run that we're going to find technical technological solutions to a lot of problems that we think right now are insoluble. We have a record of doing this uh, in, in energy in particular. So let me just close yeah, sure. one one example. Before World War II, at the point, you know, the late 1930s, when everybody could see that the war was coming, the oil major oil refiners in the United States sat down with the U.S. Defense Department. And they said, look, you know, there's a war coming and it's going to involve airplanes. So we know, we know those things. What kind of aviation fuel do you need? And the Defense Department said, well, you know, we really like 100 octane fuel for planes. We'd like to design our planes uh, knowing that there was a supply of 100 octane fuel. At this point, 100 octane fuel was a reference chemical sold by the ounce, fairly high price. And they said, you know, we need to be able to buy a lot of it and we need to be able to buy it cheaply. And the, the oil company said, we can do that if you promise you'll buy it. You know, we'll make the investment to make it happen. And the defense department said, all right. And so they, they did a deal and the oil company sat down and they, they, they 
produced, they drove the costs down, they drove the supply up. And by the time of the Battle of Britain, the Germans thought the British had gotten a whole new air force because their planes were performing so much better because they had much better fuel. And that kind of progress is possible today. We can do that kind of thing. It takes the opposite of what the current administration is doing, which is the administration has said to oil and gas producers, for example, you're a bad industry, you need to go away. But in the meantime, would you please make some more? Well, who's going to invest in expanding uh, the fossil fuel industry if you're being told that you're supposed to go away, right? So the the opposite approach, the, the one taken in the 1930s was, well, here's what here's the problem. If you can solve that, we commit to, to buying your product. And we could do that again, right? We can have that kind of progress by harnessing what Simon called the ultimate resource, the, the inventiveness of human beings. And so it just really takes, in part, getting people out of the way, but it takes having some people in Washington who are going to take a proactive approach to encouraging innovation rather than trying to dictate how things are going to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, very good, Andrew. Where can people find out more about your thoughts, your papers, and your work? You can look at my webpage if you just Google my name, which has two R's and two S's, and T-A-M-U. You'll find a webpage that has all that, or you can find lots of my writing at ssrn.com and just search on my name. Very good. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.